MSW Media. A big thanks to Dipsy for supporting the MSW Book Club. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories. If you're looking to heat things up, there's a story waiting for you. Get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com ag. And we really appreciate Jenny Kane for sponsoring our show. Get 20% off all furniture and home decor, free shipping on furniture, early product access, and much more with a JKH membership. Join at jennykane.com membership. Jenny Kane Home creates California-inspired classics for any room or mood. Go to jennykane.com home to create the space you'll never want to leave. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and this is the final episode, episode eight, in the series covering the New York Times bestseller, Allow Me to Retort, by Ali Mastal. Today, I'll cover the final three chapters, chapters 19, 20, and 21, beginning on page 214 of the hardback edition. So let's begin with chapter 19, called What If Your Vote Actually Didn't Matter? We already know from previous chapters that 25% of the constitutional amendments after the first 10 are about voting rights. And Ellie opens with a story about meeting his first Republican official, Rick Lazio, when he was a young, he was 12, when he was a tween. He says, uh, we may remember him as the guy that bullied Hillary Clinton during a Senate campaign debate in the year 2000 when he approached her podium and harangued her to sign a campaign finance pledge that he pulled out of his pocket. Uh, Ellie reminds us that in the before times, that kind of behavior could tank a candidate. (laughs) That was before Trump. But Ellie says he gets a bad rap. When he first met him, he was in a smoke-filled room, literally the room where it happens, in 1991 with his dad, who had brought him to a redistricting meeting because there wasn't any childcare at the time. And Lazio was there, or was going to be there, as a newly elected Republican in the Suffolk County Legislature. And with regards to redistricting, Ellie shares what the Constitution says about the census in Article 1, Section 2, quote, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the show number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of 10 years in such a manner that they shall by law direct, unquote. That's the original language. But, Ellie says, the three-fifths language has been amended. He left that in to make sure we knew the founders initially intended three-fifths. Ellie explains initially there would be one rep per 30,000 people, but in 1929 it was capped 
the House was capped at 435. So now when we redistrict, states trade House seats back and forth. There's a finite number. And in 1991, Suffolk County, where Long Island is, was redrawing its lines, and Ellie's dad was part of that battle. All the legislators were white back then, and Ellie's dad was black. And the reason he was invaluable to the process was that he was the guy who knew where every single black and brown person lived, every single one of them in the county. Growing up, Ellie's house was full of maps with pins and yarn and showing where the lines were and where they should be. And Ellie's dad's goal was to move one pocket of black people into Miss Postal's district and move another group, that's she's one of the legislators, and move uh, another group of Latinos out of Lazio's district and into one where Dems would be more competitive. But he needed Lazio's sign-off. And Lazio was late. The adults were so busy yelling at each other that only Ellie noticed when Lazio came in. He didn't know that was the guy his dad was yelling about. Lazio sat down next to Ellie and said, Is that your dad? And at first, Ellie was like, how did he know? But then remembered he was the only other black person in the room. But he answered, no, my dad is Doc Gooden. And they talked for about five minutes about the Mets and how school was going for Ellie until Ellie's dad brought them back to reality by yelling, if Rick isn't here in five minutes, I'm taking his Dominicans and his balls, unquote. Lazio said, you talk like that in front of your son? And Ellie's dad shot back. I talk like that in front of my fucking daughter if I fucking feel like it. Lazio said to Ellie, time to go to work, and got up and headed to the center of the smoky room. And Ellie recalls uh, he was amenable to his dad's proposal. The Republican that was actually getting screwed was one in the district that the Dominicans would go to, and that Republican wasn't in the room. But Lazio had bigger life plans than the Suffolk County legislature, and the real reason he was fighting was because he didn't want to be seen as screwing over a fellow Republican by moving a bunch of Democrats into his district. Ellie's dad and Lazio, though, worked out some sort of a deal, and it ended up being a win-win because Lazio went on to be elected to Congress, and Ellie's dad won Miss Postal's seat when she died and became the first black person elected to the Suffolk County legislature in 2004. So whenever we hear the term gerrymandering, for Ellie, it conjures up images of that smoke-filled room with powerful people drawing lines to protect their own political interests. But the process of drawing districts that lead to fair representation is the exact same process as drawing districts that disenfranchise voters. Given the power of gerrymandering, Ellie says you would think we would have some clear rules, but we do not. There's nothing in the Constitution about it, mostly because that's in the purview of the states and because the founders didn't think political parties would even be a thing. Not to mention the concept that racial minorities would be underrepresented wasn't even on the table. So SCOTUS had to weigh in. And it will shock no one that the gerrymandering became a constitutional issue because the South refused to stop being racist. And Baker v. Carr in 1962, uh, where SCOTUS agreed to take up the case uh, and they did that because Tennessee wanted to keep using the districts that it had from 1901. And suffice it to say, that map was super racist. So activists argued it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That SCOTUS even took the case up was a big deal because up until that point, states argued gerrymandering was a state concern and the Fed should just stay out of it. But in Baker v. Carr, the court ruled that it did have the power to fix issues of state administration when the state was in violation of constitutional principles. Since then, we have seen over and over that conservative justices require racists to be explicitly racist 
when they gerrymander by saying things like, this is a negative racial gerrymander, or this map is necessary to keep uppity Negroes in their place, unquote. But that's not how shit works. Yet they require specific magic words for a gerrymander to be considered racist. Quote, left unchecked, Republican state legislatures would use that power to disenfranchise racial minorities. Conservatives like John Roberts don't want to rely on math. They don't want to rely on the 15th Amendment, and they don't want to rely on the Voting Rights Act. They just want to let Republicans disenfranchise black voters, call it political, and hope history misses their role in the centuries-long oppression of black people in the New World. Unquote. Ellie asked his dad on the car in the car ride home, what happens if you're not in those meetings? He says, black people get fucked. Ellie says, I thought he was bragging. I was only 12. And that brings us to chapter 20. It's called Abolish the Electoral College. Yes, please. Ellie says he spent a lot of time in this book talking about how conservative justices continue to undermine constitutional amendments, but there's one that would immediately end the construct of white supremacy, and that would be an amendment abolishing the Electoral College. And while we're at it, he says, it would be great to abolish the Senate. Not in like a Roman emperor kind of way, he says, but he says the Senate is not an exercise in Republican governance as much as it's a way to prevent Republican self-governance. And we've talked about this a lot over the years on our podcasts. Two senators per state is simply not fair because it ties representation to land and not people. I've often asked why Wyoming gets as much representation as California, for example, and why D.C. gets zero senators. Our Senate structure is the result of the Connecticut Compromise of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 because smaller states were afraid that they'd be controlled by larger, more populous states. And the South was particularly worried about losing slaves. So the Compromise said one chamber would be repped based on population while the other would give equal representation to each state. Quote, to put it another way, white slavers feared democracy so much that they wrote it out of the Constitution. Unquote. But this is not an originalistic idea, right? We didn't move to direct popular elections of senators until 1913 with the 17th Amendment. Before then, state legislatures picked their federal senators. So conservative defenders of the Senate abandoned any pretense of originalist arguments to justify the Senate. Of course not. One of their favorite arguments, though, is that the Senate gives a voice to rural interests. But the Senate pretty much ignores rural voters in high-population states with dense city populations. Land doesn't vote, as we know, and Ellie reminds us that the urban versus rural divide is real, but the Senate doesn't favor rural voters. It favors white people. Quote, as long as white people make up a plurality in a state, and as long as white people stick together in that state, white people get to control both of the state's allotted senators. That basically explains the modern South. And, and this is the point I've been making, personally, about laws designed to get minorities to move out of red states so the white people can dig in and maintain their legislatures and their federal senatorial candidates. Quote, the structure of the Senate is racist. It inherently promotes majoritarian white concerns over those of everybody else, and that structure cannot be changed even through constitutional amendments. That's because, get this, the people who agreed to structure the Senate in this patently unfair way provide that its structure was the one thing that could never be changed. Check this text from Article 5 of the Constitution, quote, and that no state, without its consent, shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. So, the racists would have to agree to not be racist. So Ellie says the Senate is a lost cause. 
Though we can do some things like give D.C. statehood, Ellie says the best thing we can do is limit the anti-democratic destructiveness of the Senate, and that's where eliminating the Electoral College comes in. The Constitution does not bar it, the elimination of the Electoral College, and Ellie says every proponent of eliminating the Electoral College has their favorite numbers that explain why the Electoral College is garbage. Ellie's favorite comes from Cardozo School of Law professor Chiron Wiggins, who wrote in 2019, quote, The total number of each state electors is not the relevant number in this calculation. The reason the popular vote diverges from the Electoral College vote is that each voter in Wyoming has more voting power in the Senate, and so in the Electoral College, than each voter in California. Here's the proper calculation. California, as... Uh, has 25,2812 eligible voters and two senators. Wyoming has 434,584 eligible voters and two senators. So Carol's voting power in California and the Senate delegation is diluted because she shares her voting power with 25,2811 other voters. Will's voting power in Wyoming in that Senate delegation is also diluted because he shares it with 434,583 other voters. But since Will's voting power in the Senate is less diluted, it's greater than Carol's voting power in the Senate. If Carol has one vote in the Senate, how many votes in the Senate does Will have? 57. So instead of saying one person, one vote, what we should be saying is white people in Wyoming get 57 votes. And Ellie can make an argument that this kind of vote dilution violates the 15th Amendment or the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But that's a tough case because Wyoming isn't actually required to be mostly white. Therefore, he says the most intellectually clean argument isn't that this vote dilution is already unconstitutional, but the answer is to add a new amendment. But that prospect also seems really dim, especially now, because Republican states aren't going to give up their power. So instead we have the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Simple idea. States pass a law promising that their electors, all of them, will go to the winner of the national popular vote. Quote, as of this writing, 15 states and D.C., holding a combined 196 electoral votes, have passed the necessary legislation. And another nine states holding 88 electoral votes have passed it in one chamber of their legislature. Unquote. But the GOP will stop at nothing to thwart democracy and overturn the results of any election they lose. And any election where the National Vote Compact conflicted with the state-by-state -state electoral results would end up before the Supreme Court. Ellie isn't sure he'd be confident about how this court would rule. So, quote, what's broken here is the Constitution. It needs to be fixed, not jerry-rigged together to make it through another election. And Ellie also points out, do you know uh, what state... Uh, where Trump got the most popular votes in 2020 was? It was California. And, he says, do you know what state where Biden got his third largest cache of popular votes in 2020? It was Texas. We have to try, he says. Otherwise, we should just start the whole experiment over from scratch, which probably also requires a two-thirds majority in the hopeless fucking Senate. That brings us to the last chapter, chapter 21. It's called The Final Battle. And Ellie addresses here the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which make him chuckle because he imagines Madison standing up like Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House, shouting, all is well, as a riot breaks out around him. The framers were worried about the Bill of Rights because they thought some future asshole would see the list as a challenge, meaning only those rights were the ones that people had. He says, quote, put up a sign that says no shirt, no shoes, no service, and somebody's going to show up with no pants. Some jokers just want to see the world burn. So Madison 
reluctantly went along with the Bill of Rights, but then added the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Quote, the enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And here's the full text of the Tenth Amendment. Quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Ellie says, by now, you know me. If it were up to me, I'd light the entire Constitution on fire and start over with a document that wasn't so goddamned racist. And of course, conservatives try to pretend the Ninth Amendment doesn't exist. <laughs> Scalia said this about it. You know, in the early years, the Bill of Rights just referred to the first eight amendments. They didn't even count the Ninth. The court didn't use it for 200 years. If I'd been required to identify the Ninth Amendment when I was in law school or in the early years of my practice, and if my life depended on it, I couldn't tell you what the Ninth Amendment was. And he was kind of channeling Bork, who said this during his failed confirmation hearings. Quote, I don't think you can use the Ninth Amendment unless you know something of what it means. For example, if you had an amendment that says, Congress shall make no, and then there's an ink blot, and you can't read the rest of it, and it's the only copy in existence, I don't think the court can make up what might be under the ink blot if you can't read it. Men like this deny the existence of the Ninth Amendment because it blows their entire project apart. Madison included it to prevent small-minded people's interpretation of the rest of the entire document. Rights are what the government, they, they speak to what the government cannot do. The people who think we needed the Bill of Rights to believe the rights of people were protected by a government too weak to impinge on its rights, even if it wanted to. They knew that if they put any rights in, people would think those were the only rights, which is why they added the ninth and 10th, to remind people the intent of the document is fairness and justice and rights, but conservatives don't want to hear that. Here's the conversation Ellie will be having with Madison when he dies. Ellie, why didn't you at least enumerate the right to do what you want in the privacy of your own bedroom? Madison, son, if the federal government is in your bedroom, I've already failed. Ellie, well, you did fail, and don't call me son. Madison, boy, I'm talking to a slave. This is hard for me. Ellie, I'll kill you. Madison, also not explicitly prohibited by the federal constitution, but bring it on. Brother Malcolm does it every Tuesday just for sport. Satan, this is why only Buddhists go to heaven. But while originalists ignore the Ninth Amendment, they do pay a lot of attention to the Tenth. They use it as their justification for consequences of their shitty actions, saying, hey, hey, we just want to leave it up to the states, as with overturning Roe and slavery. They aren't bigots against the LGBTQ community. They just want the states to determine their own appropriate level of gay bashing that's right for them. Conservatives are quick to ignore the Tenth Amendment when it doesn't suit them, though, especially when they're striking down state regulations on firearms or state regulations on environmental regulations or uh, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Quote, originalists will always point to an enumerated right when they want the federal government to do something in violation of the Tenth Amendment. And the structure of the Constitution pits the Ninth and Tenth Amendments against each other in that respect. He says, quote, the Ninth contemplates robust protection of individual rights that defends minority interests against the excess of the majority. The Tenth contemplates a society where the states are free to do what they want against minority populations in their states, but are themselves protected from the majority views of the nation. And Ellie says that is the core conflict of the document, one that conservatives always resolve for the benefit of white people. And Ellie ends with this, quote, Redeeming our failed constitution from its bigoted and sexist sins does not require new amendments. 
It does not require a few new ornaments hung upon its crooked boughs. It requires the emerging majority in this country to reject the conservative interpretation of what the Constitution says and adopt a morally defensible view of what our country means. I'm here to tell you that the Constitution is trash. Conservatives are the ones who say it always has to be. And that's the end. I will reach out to Ellie to see if he can come in to answer some questions. He is extremely busy. He might not be available, but we will put the form to answer to ask him questions in patrons' inboxes in case he can make it. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening to this series. And be sure to pick up your copy of Allow Me to Retort if you haven't already. Having it on your bookshelf will make you look sexy and smart AF. I'll be back tomorrow with the Daily Beans. I'll be live tweeting the hearings this week from the at Wrote account on Twitter. Just two sleeps until the committee ties Donald directly to the violence on January 6th. This this week will be one for the history books. Uh, Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and this was the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>